0: going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Peer Pleasure with Dewey Halpas on Equal Vision Records and Sound Talent Media. I am Dewey, your host with the most, bringing you more great content week after week. This week, guys, we have a living legend on this show. This man has been a part of a band that changed my entire world, changed the trajectory of my musical socialization, uh, has Been in my head and my heart countless times through many different situations and many different uh, circumstances, places in the world. And I am talking about Dave Mello, the drummer from Operation Ivy, a band that everybody I assume that listens to this show knows, does not need any introduction. Uh, But Dave Mello from Operation Ivy, you know, pivotal in the the Berkeley uh, East Bay scene setting up shows in his garage before there was Gilman, before there was uh these warehouse shows, like he was literally playing shows in his garage, basement, whatever, um, back in in high school. And that gave place for, you know, bands like Soup and Operation Ivy, of course, basic radio, like like Tim Armstrong's first band with with Matt Freeman. Like the the whole uh the whole scene just kind of had similar like like a like a start from this area like not a similar start that's the wrong word but uh an early start from these shows and then you know operation Ivy the first band to tour out of there you know in a car a a a four-door car with a box on the top of it was what they used to tour in with a roadie so there was five people you know like it was crazy um but yeah just absolutely absolutely crazy and uh i love that band so much and i just can't say it enough dave was amazing getting to talk to him and ask about these stories and just hear you know his perspective on things from the business side to the show's side like it was just awesome so this kicks off two weeks of uh, east bay punk and we're gonna have dave Mello today uh, we have Corbett Redford on Thursday uh, from the Turn It Around documentary. If you have not seen it yet, watch it because Thursday you'll want to ha- want to have seen it to listen to that episode. There's a lot of good stories on there. We talk a lot about the film. Uh, and then next week we're going to have two more Bay Area Giants. And, uh, yeah, I'm just stoked to bring this stuff to you. Uh, so let's get some business out of the way and we'll jump right in. So peerpleasurepodcast.com is the website. Peerpleasurepod at gmail.com is the email if you want to get in touch with me. Uh, I want you guys to go over to Facebook and join the Peer Pleasure Podcast Inner Circle Facebook group. It is a private group, but when you click to join, we'll add you in. It's just to protect everyone's privacy. We talk about a lot of things in there. As you know, we talk a lot about mental health and depression on this show. Um, There's a lot of talk about that, but then there's a lot of fun stuff as well. But it just made more sense to make it a private group, and that way we can just see who's coming in. Uh, and monitor that because we want to keep everyone safe um, and their thoughts and everything else. So thank you guys for coming back week after week. I love each and every one of you. Uh, we just did my, my first Instagram live tonight, and that's why the episode's coming out about an hour late, is because it actually went really well. There was a lot of people that chimed in and, and participated, so maybe I'll do some more of those. Um, but we're just trying out some new gear, and just felt like showing it off. So uh, thank you to you guys who who came into the Instagram live just now. And as I told you, the episode is coming out, and you're listening to it now, so we know it has made it to your ears. All right, guys, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with the man himself, Dave Mello from Operation Ivy. Uh Hello. There it is. Hello. here we go. (laughs) (laughs) How are you, my friend? Good. How are you? I am great. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I hear you great. Awesome. Dude, thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it a lot. I know it was uh, (laughs) like a random reach out. (laughs) Yeah. I'm shocked that you've not done one of these before.
1: Yeah, not once. You wow. said you had Matt Freeman on here before. Yeah, I,
0: was like, I did. But I had him on for Charger. Um, my show's not really like, it's not press, right? Like it's not, I get requests all the time for people to come on. Hey, so-and-so's got a new record coming out. And I'm just like, all right, cool. But like, it's more about the stories and things like that to where uh, it's time. I like to make them timeless where you can go back three years from now and listen to it. Right. If you didn't hear it and you're not listening to whatever about this record or that. Uh, but Matt was, I think he was nervous. So he had, uh, uh, I guess Jason on with him. And it's one of the only times I did two people at once right. on the phone. And it was super weird because okay. you didn't know who was talking. Yeah. So <laughs> but yeah. it worked out and yeah, Matt's a good dude. We did, uh, we did warp mm-hmm. tour with Rancid once, and that was my only time really like spending time with those guys. Um but That's yeah, cool. solid dudes, man, as you know. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. Right on, man. Well, right on. So <laughs> so uh dude, like what are you up to now? I'm just curious, like off the top, what you're up to now. Like uh are you are you working a job? Are you doing music? Like what are you what is what's Dave Mello up to now?
1: Right now, right now. Um, I'm living in Cottonwood, California on a ranch. I have horses. I have like 50 peacocks and uh, I have a wife and uh, a a 13 year old kid.
0: (laughs) Right on. That is is not exact. That's not anywhere near what I thought you would be saying. I love it. On a ranch. How long have you had a ranch?
1: Uh, for almost a year and a half
0: now. What prompted that?
1: Well, my wife uh, is a horse lover and okay. uh, she's from Missouri. I married her about 15 years ago. Okay. And we, we were living in the Bay. Well, long story, I, I was actually living in Lake Tahoe for like 10 years uh, from 98 to 2008. Mm-hmm. And I, I met her in Sacramento. And, uh, I got married in 2007 and had a kid in 2007. And I, in, when I was in Tahoe, I owned a record store for about 10 years called mad about music. And, uh, it was mostly punk rock and hip hop, small record store. And 2007 came and re- recession came mm-hmm. and, And I had a, I needed, I just had a kid, so I needed to get away. And we moved back to the Bay area and lived in El Cerrito for 10 years. Um, had a kid and worked in a warehouse, played still all this time playing in different bands. Mm -hmm. And, uh, just trying to get enough money to where we could get some land because she loved horses. And ever since she's been in California, we just couldn't afford having horses. It's mm-hmm. so, uh, at that. So when we finally had enough change, we sold our house, bought a house in Cottonwood. It's about two and a half hours from the Bay, Okay, right by Redding, Northern California, mm-hmm kind of, uh, you know, farm, mostly just farms and horses and cows out here. Mm-hmm. So we bought, when we bought this house out here, we, uh, it came with like 50 peacocks that were just on the land. So <laughs> we have tons of peacocks in there all over the place <laughs> and we have a couple horses and dogs and, and, uh, so, you know, that's about it. Since COVID, though, I haven't been able to play in my bands that much. You know, everything's Mm -hmm. sort of shut down. 2020 was going to be a really good year for me, but then that happened. Uh, So now I'm just uh, almost about to start the cycle again. Before COVID, I was going down to the Bay Area every once in a week, like every once a week. Or or more mm-hmm. and playing a bunch of shows. Uh I'm in a band called Kicker and uh and a band called G Driver okay. still. And uh those are the bands I'm going down there and playing with. Uh Kicker is a band that's been around for 10 years and uh, has members of Neurosis, Dystopia, and Pete the in the band. And um, kind of like a, Pete the our singer. He's a pretty famous Rhodey from bands like Subhumans mm-hmm. and uh, English bands and moved out here. And this band is kind of just based around him and a kind of an English anarcho-punk kind of sound to it. Mm-hmm. And that's, and I'm playing drums in that band and Jew driver. Jew, I play in Jew driver and we're just like a parody mock-up band of screwdriver we're uh-huh. a bunch of Jews. <laughs> and we just like, we, we partly we take uh, screwdriver songs and turn the lyrics into Jewish songs about food or whatnot. And, <laughs> yes. and we all kind of just like, screwdriver, but with like yarmulkes and, and, uh, and then we have like the Israeli flag full of blood behind us, that kind of, uh, satire. We're we're really, really, really funny. We also do like, we also write our own songs Mm -hmm. and make it, make them, you know, just hilarious about sort of based around being like an angry Jew, grandpa figure, which is our singer, and about complaining about, you know, just life in general, mm-hmm. living in the U.S. And it, it's, a, <laughs> it's political, but at the same time, it's just being silly, stupid.
0: Yeah. Dude, <laughs> that's funny you bring up the record store, because uh, I did not know that you had a record store in Lake Tahoe until last night. I was emailing with Corbett Redford. And, uh, yeah. he's going to come on the show next week. And I was like, dude, I'm talking to Dave Mello tomorrow. Like what's, what's some stuff that you can, that, you know, bring up. And of course he had a bunch of stuff, but one of them was, uh, I'd love to hear about that record store in Lake Tahoe. Like, it's like, what Lake Tahoe, when was he in Lake Tahoe? And, uh, that was one of the things he brought up. <laughs> that's awesome. But what, what, oh, that's awesome, dude. what, 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 uh, like that was the recession that did in that store and getting you out of there. But like, what brought right. you to Lake Tahoe in the first place?
1: Well, what, what brought me to Lake Tahoe was I needed to get away from the Bay Area. It was it was 1997, okay. And going back a, a bit, I was in a <clears throat> the main band I had been in after Operation Ivy, uh, which broke up in 1989. Mm-hmm. I. I started a band with my brother and one of our best friends, Gavin, and we were called Mm Schlong. And I was in that band for pretty much almost 10 years. And we toured all that time. And we toured like, you know, nine times you long us tours. We also, uh, we just did so much during that time. And, uh, in 97, I just kind of got overwhelmed with, uh, living in a warehouse in a like cave and that whole thing. My brother, who's the bass player, uh, Pat, Pat Mello, he had gotten an accident in 97, a skateboard accident. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was skating at night in the Berkeley Hills and for those, you know, the Berkeley Hills, that's not a place where you want to skate at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he fell off a skateboard, busted his head, almost died. It's very, you know, and he still has bad problems today. It was a bad oh. brain injury thing. And it kind of stopped long for a while. And also... He, I was living with him and it just was really hard on me. And I just felt like I had to get away at that time, get away from Bay area, start something new. And I went to Tahoe because at that time my parents owned a cabin there. And so I went up there and, you know, went to school at a community college up there for a couple of years. And it was awesome. I just loved it. So a friend of mine, from Las Vegas was wanting to open up a store, and I said, "Move on up here." His name is Boyd, and most a lot of people from Lake Tahoe know him. He's a famous guy. He was actually in Lake in uh, Las Vegas. He was in a band called Boba Fett Youth. He was a nerd, you know, Star Wars. They were a punk band. So I said, come on up and we'll open a store, maybe even start a band. We tried to start a band, didn't work so well, but the store was awesome. We found a place, we opened it up. It was a small, a little small, like the size of a living room. And uh, we mostly just had punk rock music and hip hop music the music that locals, snowboarders, skiers wanted to listen to. And we just did that. We basically uh, were a was a store for the locals. So, you know, when the tourism wasn't doing very well and we would go, we'd go under because the locals, they were buying all our stuff. And when tourists wasn't coming up there, they didn't have no money. So you know, in 2007, you know, everything kind of went down and it was a really bad year for Lake Tahoe as far as uh, skiers and and tourists up there. So we it just like we couldn't even stay afloat. And actually at this time was right around that same time that lookout went totally Bad, lookout records went bad so I was making pretty good money with operation Ivy until about 2006 when lookout stopped paying us our royalties so at this time because they were having a hard time and so they got into debt with like some of the bigger bands on their label like green Day and mm-hmm. op Ivy and and so you know we had a drop from that label and i had to move out of tahoe go down to the bay area and and get a a real job Mm -hmm. (laughs) at a warehouse so i worked in a warehouse for five years and then op ivy also got onto epitaph records which helped and then i started making a little more money off that Mm -hmm. you know I, i don't You know, I don't look at it at all. They were having a hard time and they couldn't, you know, sometimes that just happens. I actually know that too because I owned a record label in the Bay Area. And when I was with Schlong, we started our own record label called Bun Length Records. It was called Bun Length Records. I just named it after hot dog buns that were bun (laughs) length. And I thought that, like, I put out a bunch of seven inches and they were always bun length. So so we named it the label bun length records and we put out a bunch of stuff
0: like that. (laughs) I love that. So simple, you know, like, and that's with, with lookout and just to, I'll get this out of the way, you know, right now, just because I, I, the, the scene you were a part of for me was one of the most incredible times in music. And, but I was watching it, before, I mean, the internet wasn't really around. I was living it through the Lookout Records mail order catalog. Right. And in Alaska. So nowhere near Gilman, <laughs> nowhere near any of that stuff. We're in a trailer in Alaska trying to learn Op Ivy and Green Day songs. Like this is like right after, maybe right before, right after Dookie came out. Uh, right. is, so they, my buddies discovered Green Day and worked backwards. And that's what we were doing. And the Op Ivy record was sitting on, on the stereo. And I was like, what's this? And he's like, Oh, I got it off of the lookout mail order. I was like, Oh cool. I put it in like what? And so (laughs) like, but we were living through you guys after you'd already broken up. But like the whole scene down there, like that whole thriving era, like we couldn't see it. We were just looking at the pictures in magazines, listening to the music, but we're in Wasilla, Alaska in a trailer trying to jam these songs and learn how to play in a band. And wow, it was so incredible. Like, <laughs> I just wish I could have seen any of it in the time, like oh, wow. in there, right? Like we drove past Gilman on tour probably twice, never went in, never played there. I didn't even get to stop and like, just kind of stand there for a minute and kind of just take in the gravity of, of what it was about that. As you know, being on tour, you can't, you can't see anything. It's out the window and you're on your way to the venue. If you're not playing there, you're not going there. Right. Uh, but <laughs> but that whole era was just so great and and that documentary that corbett did uh yeah is incredible it's my favorite documentary and uh there's just so much going on there you know and and oh, yeah um, for sure i'm really sorry to hear about your brother's accident that's insane like the uh we had a buddy yeah. juan uh alvarete that got in a bike accident. he played uh for like Racer X and and Mars Volta and stuff got in a bike accident right. and he's now still recovering years later. Yeah. Who knows yeah, where that's gonna that. But um yeah. yeah. Man. So and you I can, can also uh living in a warehouse. <laughs> you said you were living in a warehouse with your brother? Yeah. I yeah, lived yeah. I lived in a venue down here in Portland, Oregon. I lived in the they rented out the upstairs to a church. Uh like to do like a, like impromptu church thing, just to make some money to pay the rent. And they had a nursery for the church with like some couches and stuff, which became a green room later. I lived in that church and I had to move out every Saturday night and move (laughs) back in on Monday. So they wouldn't know I was living there. So I can attest to you, like, like living in a warehouse or even in that environment in an area that's not zoned for residential, there's noise all the time. It is a cave. And I know that feeling. That you were feeling that, that loneliness and that, like, it yeah. beats you down subconsciously. It really does.
1: Exactly. Especially after like eight years, eight years of just constantly, I mean, eight years doesn't seem like that long now. I mean, we're old and like, I think about eight years and it seems like a short period of time. But back when you're in your 20s, mm-hmm. eight years is a huge amount of time. And those eight years that we we toured constantly or were in the Bay Area, in this warehouse, uh, throwing parties. And, and don't get me wrong. I love the parties. I love party life. Mm-hmm. But, you know eight years of it constantly you grow really you you need to escape somehow (laughs) you
0: are describing my 20s i would leave on tour be in a venue every night sleeping in a van whatever all day all night come home everyone else goes to their house i would get dropped off at the club i'd go up to my room lay down in my bed And all of a sudden, a band in the basement would start practicing in the practice spaces. And I just wanted to go down there and kick the door down. And then that night, I had to work a show. Like, it would not stop. Exactly. Your brain couldn't shut off. It was like torture. The thing you love most is torturing you, you know? You live to make music, but you just want it to turn off. And you can't. Totally, dude. That's crazy. In the same situation, I was there for five years, not eight. But, geez, it was enough it was enough.
1: Yeah. I hear you, dude, but it it didn't, it didn't like, it didn't destroy my want to, to keep on playing punk music, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I mean, I'm a lifer for that. I just, you know, that's something that I live for. I love all kinds of music, but playing in punk bands specifically is something that I, I, doesn't matter how old I get, I don't see myself ever not doing that in some sort, some mm-hmm. sort of way. I mean, I'm—I just love the music. I started playing when I was thirteen, you know, mm-hmm. and and it just it it just didn't stop. I mean, I I played all kinds of music, and I and I'm influenced by all kinds of music, but playing in a hardcore punk music, that's just, the, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like playing that style of music in front of people, listening to it, having it influence you in all different kinds of ways. There's nothing better than that for me. And I, and I always, I always play that till I die. Dude, I, <laughs> I
0: agree with you a hundred percent. And that, I, and just another quick tangent is, is I never, so li, li, living that scene from far away without the internet, uh, before YouTube, there was this service. This guy would make VHS tapes of bootlegged concerts. And you basically right. check the check marks of the bands you want to see, and he'll tape them for you on a VHS tape. So you get like six hours of footage. So like you can say, I want this Green Day video. I want this Op Ivy show. I want this, uh, you know, um, uh, like Whitecaps show or whatever, like whoever it was, there was a list. And that was finally when we got to see you guys live and see you playing drums was something else, dude. Like, (laughs) I don't know where you get that energy, but it seems like you were born to do that. Like there's drummers like you and Bill Stevenson, I think are the two drummers that completely stand out completely originally just to watch. Like, how are they doing that? You know what I mean? Like Bill kind of just sits back and he's just playing like, but he's playing like these super intricate, amazing drums. And you're just fucking going like hairs shaped (laughs) hairs flying just like a machine. And you guys are two drummers that I really like think stand out just from visually alone. And then once you dig into the playing, it's a whole nother ball game. Like, holy shit. But like, that was the first time we got to see that. And I could see that energy. I was already feeling it from the records, but like seeing it totally like blew us away. But that was a service that used to exist. Some guy would pirate yeah. videos, <laughs> like bootlegs that were already bootlegged and then tape them for you and mail it to you like three weeks later. That's yeah, crazy.
1: It's, that's crazy because it's like that in Japan. The first time I went to into Japan with uh, my band Schlong. We were just, we went into this one big, it was like the huge superstore of videos right mm-hmm. and you would go you walk in there and it's just like all it's like three stories and it was all just bootleg videos and and of bands and music yeah. and i walk in there and i noticed these people talking and i think the, you know they recognize me and i'm looking at this and then all of a sudden they're like hey blah, blah, this is dave Mello, and then so they say let, let me take a picture of you. And I was like, okay, you can take a picture of me. They took a picture of me and put it on their wall and, you know, told me that I could have like 10 free videos up there. You know, if they let, and they showed me this one wall and it was just operation. Ivy bootlegs. Wow. And It was like, hundreds of them and i was looking it was like they had a bootleg of our first show in my garage <laughs> the first show we ever played and and i knew that someone videotaped it but i didn't know it was actually a bootleg yeah. and so i was like well that's the first freaking show <laughs> and since then you know and he gave me all, he gave me that one he gave me these and that a lot of a lot of it was bad quality but yeah i mean they loved it there they love bootlegs and they loved it, those videos <laughs>
0: yeah dude that's crazy And yeah like yeah, they, they sell them on the streets of new york or used to like cds <laughs> or movies that were still in the theater or boot concert bootlegs that's that's incredible japan yeah. always does things so much bigger and like <laughs> yeah. more grandiose than we do you know we all think yeah, we're the best enjoy. and you go over there and it's just like what is going on dude they-
1: Exactly. Well, and then they're always trying to control everything. You know, I mean, that's the one thing I noticed about Japan is you go to Japan and you're driving in trains and stuff and you see, you know, all this wildlife, but it's all like manicured. So they like all, you know, they everything's trimmed and. They're always trying to control the growth and make it, you know, make it, you know, it's like a bonsai. It's just like the bonsai tree. I mean, you go there and you see the forest and there's just like the bonsai tree all trimmed down and people's yards and everything is is exactly like that. So yeah. I'll trim down <laughs> yeah. and control, like <laughs> control the
0: What's that movie called? What's that movie called with like Nicole, uh, oh, it's like about suburbia and all the housewives look the same. And, uh, yeah, it's like Stepford Stepford wives.
1: Yeah. Stepford
0: wives. Everything's like black. Yeah. That's crazy. And they, yeah, absolutely, man. So well, take me back because I, so you, you, is it just you and Pat is the two, you two brothers, do you have more brothers or sisters? No, it
1: was just just us the two, two of you. Um,
0: Tell me about growing I, up with him, man.
1: Yeah, I was the older brother by only two years, and so growing up with him was great. He uh, he was very much into doing what I was into, and so you know when we're growing up, we both of us were into music and. School music, you know, I played clarinet in the band, sang in choir, and uh, and then when I was like twelve or thirteen, I just I wanted to play the drums. My uncle had a drum set, and he gave me his drum set, and and I took a few lessons, but mostly you know, and mostly taught myself. Um, you know, I was pretty good. At music, I was a good clarinet player, and so my brother, sort of similar. He just sort—he of, was way more athletic than me. He was a gymnast. I mean, he could—you know—he was a better skater than me. He was a better—you know—just better at doing things than me. Right away, it took me time. I, it took me time to learn drums. Took me time to do anything, but I got really—I got really good at it. And he learned the bass. We started playing punk in high school, Albany High, which uh, Albany is right next to Berkeley. And it's a smaller city. Like, I think the school Albany High was about a thousand students, 800 to a thousand students. But those thousand students, there was like, you know, 20 bands in a during that this time. So I graduated in 1987. So when I first started school, like 1984, there was just tons of bands. So me and him, we kind of started a punk band. Our first punk band was called Distorted Truth. And it was, you know, just pretty generic band, but, uh, and he was singing at first. And then, you know, he learned bass a little, kind of slow, but he he got really good at it at the same time in high school. We, this is where I met Matt and Tim because they were they went to Albany High as well, but they were a few years older than me. So they were in a band called Basic Radio and uh, it was a ska kind of ska pop pop band. And they were really good. I, I then started throwing shows in my basement because my mom let me, you know, I was like, I really wanted to play shows and we needed a place. We lived right across the street from the high school. We had a big garage and, you know, I was like, my mom was... Uh, well, you can play shows, just you can't have any alcohol there or anything. And I hand out flyers to the neighbors telling them, you know, when it was. And like the first show I had there was Distorted Truth and me and my brother's band. Mm-hmm. And uh, this band, Krimp Shrine and Soup, two Bay Area bands. Soup was actually the first punk band that played. Uh, Gilman Street. They were the very first band to open this the first night at Gilman Street and they played that show. They would play they played those parties at my house and I then the second show, I then had basic radio play and that's where I met Tim and he told me I was a good drummer. and then a few like a few weeks later, he's like, basic radio broke up. We need, want you to play in our band and then we kind of met and then i met jesse and that's how Oper- operation ivy started but me and my brother we were always you know we'd still always played together played music together and uh and you know i was you know even though operation ivy you know we played for a good two years not even that yeah, maybe a little more than two years, two years. But during that time, I was still playing music with my brother. I was, I was partying with a bunch of, you know, people from high school. And uh, one of them was this, was my friend Gavin. And uh, when Operation Ivy broke up, it was just like, kind of a natural thing for me and my brothers to start another band with our friend gavin and that's where we started salon and uh for a brief time though my uh we were right after operation ivy broke up we were playing with matt and tim too in this band called downfall and my brother was in that band he played rhythm guitar and so we played with them and then uh we decided that we wanted to just concentrate on schlong and we just started, we just did that. And we did mm. a lot of stuff in eight years.
0: Dude, th- th- there's <laughs> a lot there to unpack. Cause I want to, I want to unpack some of this, but also downfall. So I was reading up on downfall because I'd heard the music. The music was great. Like, I really enjoyed that music. It's out, like, YouTube and stuff. Like, it never came out. And it said because, like, Epitaph, like, Brett remixed the record or something, and then with Rancid's uh, Momentum decided not to release it uh, is what it said. And I was like, well, that's strange because the music's really good. Like, it's an interesting transitional phase, too, Mm -hmm. between Op Ivy and Rancid. And it's it's got it all is. you guys in it it's it's great and i'm kind of bummed that it's not coming that not going to come out or not at least out now you know what i mean like it was good stuff right but uh
1: yeah it was it should have should have came out and there is some there's some good stuff on there uh lookout actually was going to put it out like right before they went under, they were going to put it out. Mm-hmm. We actually have a, yet, yeah, Brett, we have a totally mixed version of it with like dub versions of some songs. And it, it, I think that, you know, that Matt and Tim didn't really need that. I mean, there was, you know, so much that they were doing at the same time mm-hmm. and that, they didn't need that. That it wasn't something that they needed to come out. It, was gonna, it wasn't going to help them. So it didn't come out, which is I, totally understandable. Sure. It's sort of the same. It's sort of the same thing when, you know, people always ask, you know, who, you know, why will Operation Ivy should come back together for a reunion or just let, you know, fans have something. But for me, I'm totally for it. For me, like I'd be into it, but it's just something that the other members don't need. They have so much, you know, other things going on in their lives. It's not something that they really need to do. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, in music, you know, you, you, you play music for yourself and, you know, it's great. That people like, you know, get into it and feel your energy and it inspires them and gets them to do it. But you have to do it for you. Or, you know, or people are not going to get that you always have to do it for you. So there's not anything in it for you to do it at a time, then, you know, you shouldn't just do it because people want you to do it or you think you can make money because it's not going to show if you're not doing it for yourself. If you don't really want to do it, then you shouldn't do it. Not saying I don't want to do it because I would love to do that. because <laughs> it, was fun. it was fun to tell and I would love to revisit that, but I can understand why we don't.
0: Yeah. And I, I understand yeah. it too. It, and it makes sense. I mean, I'm the same similar situation. The band that I was in then became a massive band and like Grammy winners and they won't, they don't even talk about the band we were in before that in interviews. Like it's kind of wiped off the earth and we've got offers to do festivals and stuff with that old band. And it's not, we don't even ask cause it's like, well, it's right. not going to happen. And, and that's fine, but we would totally do it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> if we had the chance, but it's not going to happen. It's not in the plan, which is fine. And it wouldn't, and some of the people wouldn't be into it. Like you said, exactly the same thing. Uh, Nowhere yeah. near on the monumental level of, of Operation Ivy is their influence, your influence in like, uh, I would love to see that happen again. I would love to just see it in any capacity, but you know, he'd have to be into it. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you was when you were in it, like when, when it was happening, did you guys feel the uh-huh. magic that was there as it's happening? Or did you, you know, cause people gravitated to it fairly quickly and it became like a thing. And I think because they saw that it was great. But when you were in it, did you feel that magic? Or did it feel like just another band that was clicking?
1: I I, I think we felt that magic. I de- I definitely felt it. I always pictured like I'm a huge Who fan. Mm-hmm. I was from, from a kid. I was huge, big into the Who. And there was a time, you know... That I just felt like we felt like that. I felt like the the chemistry between me and Matt, especially mm-hmm. the drums and the bass, and oh, yeah. Tim on guitar, and we have this four piece thing going. That we had this kind of energy and this power that was very much Who esque. It live, especially live. You know, when just playing, and I felt that, and I think we all. We all felt it, but we all just didn't realize, you know, that it was something that was going to catch on, that people were in and that was going to be so big. And it never really was until until right before we before we broke up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that the shows maybe, you know, four months before we broke up were pretty that energy was there and the crowds we were drawing was a lot, lot bigger. I mean, it happened a lot after we toured, I think we toured one US tour and that tour, you know, kind of just brought us really tight, got us really tight and got us
0: What's going on, guys? This is Dewey. I want to tell you about some new releases coming up from Equal Vision Records. As you guys know, Equal Vision Records is my family, and so are these bands. I really want you to check these out. We've got Hot Water Music with their tenth studio album, Vows, out May 10th, featuring guest appearances by Dallas Green of City and Color, Thrice, The Interrupters, and Brandon and Daniel from Turnstile. See them on their 30th anniversary tour with Quicksand in the states in May and June Go there for vinyl and merch from all of your favorite bands. Check out Hot Water Music's new record and Bewell's new 7-inch now. Now, if you're working, as most people are, online doing collaborations with people from all over the country, all over the world, as easy as that is with the Internet, uh, you want to get those people paid when you put that music online. And splits can do that. You can add an unlimited amount of collaborators to any track. You can change the splits at any time. You can add or remove collaborators at any time. You can see previous splits. And all your collaborators are going to have to do is sign up for a DistroKid membership, a DistroKid account, so they can get paid. And as always, DistroKid never takes a cut. You and your collaborators get 100% of the earnings in total. A couple other awesome things that they do is they set up an official artist YouTube channel. Uh, You can use Spotify Canvas, synced Lyrics, promo card to promote your release on social media, a mini video for your socials as well. There's just so many awesome things about using DistroKid. And like I said, I don't advertise things I don't use, haven't signed up for. I have signed up for this. It is a breeze, literally a breeze, and you can get going right away. So definitely check out DistroKid, and I want to give you 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. That is distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for Peer Pleasure Podcast. Once again, that is 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP. Go check out DistroKid right now, distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for 30% off. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Hey guys, this is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I wanted to tell you about Premium Pleasure, our premium subscription service that's available now, peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. There's three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier one is $5 a month. It gets you the ad-free experience. Tier two gets you access to the peer pleasure Passcast. It gets you access to the videos of the interviews. It gets you merch discounts. Tier three is $20 a month. Um, so being able to give you guys that little bit of extra is a big deal to me. And having your support is a big deal to me because if we don't support our artists and creatives, we're not going to have any left. So I appreciate it. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. Go sign up today and get some of this premium pleasure.
1: So just playing the songs over and over again. and right, I mean, pretty much that whole tour that we did, we were writing the songs that were going to be on energy. And when we came back, we started to work on that album and that whole process of touring and then writing that album and coming back and having the, you know, MRNR promote us so much with turn it around and that whole, all, all that in all that, you know, Kilman Street and all that momentum and that whole scene was starting to rise and really get big right at that time. That was all coming together. And that's when we just, you know, we felt that, you know, wow, we're going to, this, this is something people like us, (laughs) where people are coming to the show, same people and more people. And I think We felt that and I think that was, we felt that feeling and it's very strong and that feeling, being strong is also a very, can be a very scary feeling if you're not sure that you want that. Are you sure you want that attention? Are you sure you want to go down this route? Because as soon as you go down that route, people are expecting things. You're going to have to do this now it's not just because now it's not just about you and what you want it's about we're giving hope or we're giving something to these people and they're going to want something from it Mm -hmm. and i think that that's that was the beginning of the end you know (laughs) it was we didn't want we didn't want to wear those shoes and that's that's where where it stopped
0: well tell me take me take me through if you don't mind I and Corbett and I were talking about this too because I when you guys did that first tour, do you, can you tell me some stories from that tour and kind of about that tour because that tour was massive uh, massively influential on other bands from the area because holy shit, these guys can go tour that any we can go tour, you know like you you set the set the right. you went out on the voyage first in a car, right like you guys were in a car. We did a tour, there was a tour with a a minivan, like people slept on the gear in the minivan with a rice cooker and a 25 pound bag of rice and would unplug vending machines at truck (laughs) stops to cook rice. Like, and that was roughing it, you know what I mean? Like $3 a day for food. Can you walk me through that tour and some of those stories from that tour? Because that's one thing Corbett was like, man, I'd love to hear more about that tour. And I would too, because, you know, it was a big deal, you know? Oh yeah,
1: oh yeah. That tour, that tour was like, again, that was the one of the first trips that all of us went away from home, and we had a or Matt owned a '69 Oldsmobile, uh, a '69 Olds, and we put it, we built this box on top of it. So we we did this whole tour in the '69 Olds. And, uh, um, with my drums in the box, the trunk was huge. So we were able to fit both amps in the trunk. And so it was five of us. Uh, we had David Hayes as our roadie and, and, uh, it was our first big tour and, I mean, a lot of those shows were really, really small. You know, you know tours. You mm-hmm. drive hours and hours, and then you get to this one place and there was no there's no promotion and you end up playing for to a handful of people, five or six people sometimes. And and that's just tour. This app but we because we you know, because right at this time the gilman street uh happening with mr r the whole like publicity thing um kamala parks booked the help us book the tour basically booked it herself and uh, she ended up writing you know a a zine about booking tours on your own a diy DIY, book it book it yourself sort of thing Mm -hmm. and Uh, she, she really had that whole tour figured out because, you know, even though we had a big spots where we were only playing for a few people, we ended up meeting lots of bands. And this is, this was the theme of all my tours. You end up meeting people or meeting bands, and this is what's great about Tour, and you help those bands out, they help you out, you're always, you're going, they introduce you to people and that are gonna book the shows, and those people introduce you to people that are gonna you know, let you stay over at their house, and then it's a, ever, it's always going around, then you let them stay at your house, and that and you remember you get their names you get their phone numbers you have this huge booklet you know with just like a list of names list of places a list of people that are cool that you might be able to sleep at their place and you just you know you're You start touring, you go to a phone booth, you know, and with your, and you phone these people while you're on tour and see if you have the book. That was that kind of thing before, you know, you can just go on, on the internet and, you know, Say we're here, or text somebody we're mm-hmm. here, and you know, <laughs> you know, someplace. This was you had to like at least spend you know 20, 30 minutes yeah. at, a, at the rest stop while someone's on the <laughs> phone trying to you know figure out where you're gonna go and where you're gonna stay. Yeah, and and that was that. We we that first tour was pretty awesome though. We played a bunch of cool shows. We played with uh, Fugazi, like I think it was like. Their third or fourth show that we that wow. they played, and we played with them, which was like awesome. And they, I mean, it was like a show with let's say a verbal assault and Fugazi, and then we played, and we we. I mean, there was a lot of small shows, and we just kind of like you know, would a couple parties, you know just play these small places and it, the shows you wouldn't think were that big, but the, the word was going around. And we also, you know, on that show, on that tour, we, there was a couple of really good shows, you know, we played that Fugazi show. We also played in Chicago where it was, uh, you know, uh, one of the first screeching weasel shows. And, and then there was the uh, zero boys, uh, re, uh, reunion show. This is 89. And, mm-hmm. and so we played that and, and then a couple other pretty big shows, but most of them were small. I remember even playing in Dover, Delaware at like a, someone's party and we played in the living room of some guy's house and their parents were there everyone had to take off their shoes before they got in the house and people were on their knees and and as we were playing they had like a knee pit where everybody like they weren't doing they were just on their knees yeah. and they kind of like were doing a thrash pit but on their knees <laughs> <laughs> with no socks with no shoes on <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, there was just interesting, interesting small shows for sure. Yeah. Deep. But, uh, it, it turned out when we got back, when we got back from that tour and we played shows in the Bay area there, we didn't have a, a small show after that. Yeah. We, I don't know why, but we were, you know, we weren't that big of a band, but we went on, we came back from tour. We, we had a pretty good draw in the Bay area for sure.
0: Yeah. Dude, that, I love those stories. I love the, those little stories, the, the living room. Like, that stuff is so awesome. These stories, they all need to be preserved, man. This whole, like, such an amazing time. The, were, what were some of the lessons you learned on that tour? Like, riding with those guys in that car. I mean, you're sleeping sitting up in a car with five people. I mean, we did a warp tour yeah. where we had 15 people in a 15-passenger van, and that sucked. But, like what was something like big that you learned about yourself or learned about the other guys on that tour? You know, you kind of find out what you're made of when you venture out there like that, but yeah, you know, was there anything that stands out to you that you really learned quickly?
1: Yeah. I think that a biggest thing is that I learned is that when you're going to play music and you want, and you really want to be in this touring band and you really want to do that. What I learned from that tour is you have to have friends. You need to do this with friends because if you aren't really good friends with someone, why you're not going to want to spend that much time with them. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a band, you know, unless you make it big all of a sudden, you know, without the work you're, you're going to be with these people all the time. So you need it. You need it be in in the in the in this situation with people that you can actually tell them that no I don't like this or yes I do like this you need to be with people that you can actually you know speak your mind to mm-hmm. and not be afraid of and mm-hmm. you know a lot of bands it's not that like that because you know you'll have either someone who's the leader of the band or think that it's his band and you know sometimes personality conflicts and mm-hmm. whatnot, or it's going to get in the way and things are going to split up. But if you're friends with people and you're going to be hanging out with them and these are your party bros, or these are just the people you want to be with and have fun with, it's going to work. You know, this mm-hmm. band is going to work, but if you're not friends to begin with that, down the line, you're gonna to get to a point where it's not gonna work. Someone's not gonna be happy with it, and and being friends is the biggest biggest thing about a band. I think if you're not friends with them, it's it's gonna be hard.
0: Yeah, friends first for sure. That's that's a good thing to learn. That's really a good thing to learn because uh, yeah, you'll never you'll never get around that unless you're put together by a boy band that's put together by somebody and just makes millions right away. <laughs> i mean you could feel you could feel the magic you know even just watching the the really horribly taped vhs tapes i mean you could feel the magic and of course i was not there i was like like you were in the seat like you were running that thing right like you were you were keeping the heartbeat going for that energy uh you know i can't even imagine i can't even begin to imagine the, the how special that felt um you know oh it's and great just like uh, i said
1: i Like I said, it was to me at the heart of it, we felt like the who to me Mm -hmm. because me, I mean, pretty much Tim and Matt taught me how to play drums to that because, you know, when I first got in with them, I was in kind of another going in another direction with my drumming. I was, you know, I was way and I've always been way into, you know all kinds of music and my drums would be here or there matt taught me how to lock into the bass you know and mm-hmm. basically to simplify simplify my drum style to lock into the bass and and concentrate on my bass drum going with the bass to drive a song and you know i didn't really realize that you know that uh, drums could be that important to uh, to the carry on of tempo mm-hmm. you know um bass is extremely important and we all know bass pretty much is the drive of a band because the bass is really keeping the time where people think the drums are keeping the time the bass keeps the time the drums lock onto the bass and drive the time okay you Correct. drive it mm-hmm but without a bass player to like really get you going to there, it's hard to think that. And sometimes drummers are just always trying to be the, the one that holds and anchors everything down, but then they don't have a bass player doing it. So it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. But if you have a bass player that locks down, anchors down the time, doesn't matter he's walking he could be a really complicated bass player and playing all this but if he's locking down the the rhythm and the beat Mm -hmm. that's what what really that's what really locks down the time that's what we're all keeping time on the drums are just accenting that punctuating that and really driving it you know yeah and and matt taught me that. Matt taught me that. And I kind of use that, use that as a, as a basis of my drum playing throughout my punk rock career.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. It's something you carry with you that he taught you, you know, oh, yeah. that just solidifies more of the friendship and just the, the community of it all, you know, even with two people, it's a community, you know, like that, that oh, whole yeah. thing. And it's so weird to think about too, the, the, what uh, basically just the word warehouse played in your life to this point? I mean, Gilman is a warehouse, like,
1: changed <laughs> yes. the world,
0: right? You to survive had to work in a warehouse, you lived in a warehouse, like, all these things, these creative <laughs> adventures all tie back to warehouse. Like, That's so true. <laughs> it's crazy how it all just kind of like bounces around. I just, all these things pop in my head as we're talking and like these, like they, they're they like little spider webs that tie together in my head. But that was one thing that just rang true to me is, is just the importance of just an open, open space. Like it, it could be anything like a warehouse could be anything. Yeah. You could literally throw a bunch of balls in there, make a giant ball pit. You could put a torture device in there. You could put gas in there. Like, <laughs> You could just you could do anything. It's a oh, blank yeah. slate. But yeah. what we do with nothing is what makes <laughs> us great, right? Like what we take what we take that's just a, a piece of paper or a pair of sticks, or we you know, what we make from nothing is is what makes us such an amazing uh species you know like oh yeah it's wild that's and and goodness. that can that ripple effect every one of those little shows you're talking about is like throwing a bucket yeah. of rocks in a lake and you see ten thousand little ripples and they all keep going but they all come together at one point and become one giant ripple and that's what happens and it's yes. so great it's so great and uh you know even playing in a living room for five people there's nowhere in the world you want to be at that moment there really isn't exactly, and it's yeah. so cool that something that seemingly minor is such a big deal to those people. You know, and that's one thing I don't hear from is people that were at those shows. I always hear about the Gilman shows, but I never hear from the people that were in that living room. where you guys played like a barn with animals in it, didn't you? Like, like oh, a yeah, farm. Had
1: a Petaluma, Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <So> <laughs> you don't hear about that. But do you get? Do people send you like photos or anything like that? From those little shows. Like hey by the way. When I was 15. Like I saw you in a basement. You know and now I'm playing in this band. You know like. And I'm I'm rambling here. But like on this show. I've had Brendan, Ian and Joe from Fugazi on. And literally they're the only ones. That that have been on this show out of 200 episodes. That do not cite Fugazi as an influence. So the only <laughs> people that aren't influenced by Fugazi. Is Fugazi. <laughs> Similar to <Up> Abide. <laughs> you know like. But. I always find that hilarious because I'll talk to them about influence and they never say Fugazi. (laughs) And of course they don't,
1: Uh,
0: but have you gotten like, like memorabilia or, or, you know, you were talking about in Japan, got recognized in Japan, but like where people have been like, I was at that show or I was at, you know, uh, things like that. Yes. Really?
1: Yes. I, I mean I've never pictures from off Ivy shows, uh, they're a little bit more rare, but though we do have a lot of pictures uh, that came up. But, you know, when I was on tour with Schlong, all the time I would get people say, you know, we saw you here. You know, I mean, the, my first Schlong tour was 1991, and energy was only a couple years old. And I remember going on that tour and this guy from another band came up and goes, you know, what's the weirdest thing is we've been on tour for a while. And every time we go into someone's house, you know, they always have an energy record and like everybody has your record in their house. And it's on, this was before I got any money from it. So I was yeah. like, Whoa, <laughs> people are like, this is, this is something. And it, and it, it's true. I think I, I, felt the power of that band as, you know, the longer we were broken up, the more this, you know, this legend started to evolve around it because, because we were never, never felt that important or that big, we, we did feel, you know, that people liked us and we had some sort of chemistry and, you know, we had a good message. We had good energy, but after we broke up and all that stuff happened, it was like, okay, it's over for us. Now let's get on doing things, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't over, you know, people still felt that. And it kind of, that, that little seed that we planted and, you know we started with these shows totally grew in a proportion that we didn't think it was going to grow you know because the legend of this is a band you know and they did this stuff but then they broke up before they got too big because they didn't you know that 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 story built and built and gave us a fan base that maybe we would not have nearly gotten this if, if we, you know, if we stayed around for, you know, a while longer, maybe that it wouldn't have been that big, but it was almost because we left it because, you know, we stopped before, you know, our pants were too big. We stopped the band and got out of it people gave us respect and that story went on and it became a record that you know you needed to buy when you were 13 years old Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. it became that record you want to get into punk well here's one of those records that you should buy you know along with minor threat along with these other bands this is this is one of those bands that you want to get and it became that.
0: Mm-hmm. It absolutely it did. it
1: have been
0: that way? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. And if this was done, if this was done in any other way, it would be the most brilliant marketing scheme ever. If you could convince, conv- if the businessman came in and convinced you guys to just stop, to just, just hear me right. out, just stop. Right. Oh, well, we don't want to stop. <laughs> no, just stop. Just trust me. Money will come in. Yeah, you're. It'd be brilliant. But the fact that it was pure and genuine, just like every song, every word, every beat was purely done. There's nothing but respect. Like (laughs) to walk away from something like that for the right reason made it so special. And again, the warehousing, right? The world is an empty warehouse. You have energy on this side. You have influence on this side. All you guys did over all this time is fill that warehouse with influence and energy from what you did right like you're stocking the shelves to build it into something right you know? and it's, it's just a beautiful thing man and it it uh <laughs> you know it means a lot to me just because it hit me at that time that I needed to hear that I needed to I needed to experience that stuff you know that message those saw I mean they I can I can tell you where I was when I heard you know these song, for the hundredth time 150th time where I was when I heard, you know, like it, it imprints on you, you know? And it's, it's uh right. just so operation Ivy, you know, done, you know, you're doing schlong, you do it you did downfall, but you said you didn't, you didn't see money from, from energy till later. Like you were on tour with schlong. Right. How does, how did that deal work with that? I, when I was talking to Brendan from Fugazi, he was telling me like how many, Records Fugazi's actually sold and just like, wow, you can do it your own way, you know, where you're not giving any money to other people. But like a lot of deals back then seemed to be like 50-50 deals. Like, well, let's put out a record and we'll split it. Like, so you guys started getting money for the record back when Lookout was on top, doing their thing. Then it's Larry left, Christopher took over, Christopher right? Applegrin? Um, and then Lookout kind yeah. of went away. Yeah. So then Epitaph right. picked it up later. So like when you guys weren't getting right. paid, did that eventually get rectified or did Epitaph just take over and start from there? Well, or what can, can I you talk about with, it? <laughs> I don't, I'm just curious. I'm not a headline grabber, but.
1: You know, I can talk about it as far as, you know, wh- how I view it but you know it might not be completely correct you know yeah. I could be wrong and, and but as far as I saw saw it we started you know it took the record came out in 89 it took at least till 91 before we started getting any money but then uh, it started gradually getting more and more and when Rancid Rancid came up came out with Out Comes the Wolves mm-hmm. record, which went great. Then the op- Operation Ivy, that really sprung up. I mean, I Rancid, you know, did have a lot to do with, uh, you know, people get into Rancid. Rancid's a popular band. And they're like, well, you know, where did Rancid come from? And they would come back to us. So I think Rancid did have a big big thing for us, you know, to help push it along right about that time. Cause that's when we sold the most from like 92 to 95 or six, mm-hmm. when we saw the most and we were making the most. And then we just started constantly just making a pretty good amount of money. And it, it kept on going till the lookout There was, it was about, you know, 2004, 2005 when Lookout really spread themselves a lot. They were putting way too much money into all, they had a lot of bands and they were putting up it, and they were taking a lot of our money and putting it into the band, thinking that it would pay off and then they can pay us back later. But it didn't really happen. There was just too much going on and they stopped paying green day and Op ivy Mm -hmm. those were the two biggest the two biggest records and uh to the point they owed us a crap load of money crap Mm -hmm. load and we weren't going to see it they tried them they tried to you know do things but it just wasn't happening and Tim and Matt had Epitaph and they were like, well, you know, let's, let's, let's do that. And so, I mean, we weren't going to get nearly as, as a good of a contract with Epitaph. I mean, with Op Ivy, we were the first, we were one of the first bands on Lookout. So those first few bands on Lookout, we, we all had great contracts because uh, you know, it was, David Hayes. David Hayes was like, "If we're going to do this, we need to split. So our profit margin, when we first signed it, band got sixty percent. Lookout gets forty percent. And I think they did that. They did that for the first like ten bands. Wow. I mean, I think it probably quickly changed after that. But we were getting sixty percent. Yeah. So that's that was pretty good." So then when we, we signed with Epitaph, we've signed for 25%, which is still really good. Yeah. It's fantastic. (laughs) You know, as far as, so, so, I mean, we weren't going to make as much, but we, at least we knew that we were going to make money and it was something and Epitaph is not going to have a problem coming up with money to, to make the records. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, that was the best deal for us at the time. Lookout just didn't seem like they look like they were falling apart at this time. So, yeah. I mean, and we, we respect them and we always and I always respect lookout, but yeah. you know, there's a certain time where you just have to look out for yourself and that's sure. what we kind of did.
0: No pun intended. That's exactly <laughs> flipped, flipped on. Uh, well, I, so that's, I mean, so if you want to buy, say you want to buy energy on vinyl, you can go on eBay and you can find it for like $155 or something like that. Like it's so sought after. Um, and then people are talking about it like if it has this address on the back of it, it was this era and this pressing and and things like that. Like it's just, it's interesting to go back and look at that what people are like paying for the, Like you had the record store. So do you, did you yeah. have a record in your record store? Oh yeah. Nice. We had all the records in there. <laughs> I was, was going to say, yeah, you had those records yeah. in there and like the, the early green day records that are going for like about $600 or something like that. Like, it's just crazy to me how, how yeah. stuff it just expands like that. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts.
1: Oh yeah. Well, and it's also, you know, I mean, I left the record, I left the record store at 2007, but It's nuts how, you know, the whole records, uh, the record collectors and records, it's going to stick around and right, writer, you know, and it went up tremendously. I mean, I wish that I would have kept all my records and I would have, you know, we would have concentrated more on the record store. I think that would have been something that would have expanded because right now records are way more valuable, right? Mm -hmm. But at that time when I was in the record store business, CDs were actually more valuable. So we thought, you know, I mean, the the normal CD, you could sell for, you know, $10 a used CD. $10 for a used CD, the same record on vinyl, you know, we were selling for $5. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we had huge things where... I mean, and all us old people, we know, of uh, the bins, you go into Amoeba or you go into these places and you find 99 cent records and you could, you know, buy all these records for 99 cents. Yeah. Nowadays you cannot do that. And in 2007 you could, and this was just about the end of it where, you know, the, the business sort of flopped, and then people realize they have all these collectible records, the digital CDs start to, you know, CDs are just this, disc that you can, you know, easily throw away and they scratch. Why are they, why are they selling them for so much? If they're just this little thing you can buy and just copy them. And, you know, it's just a digital message. It's not an analog copy. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden records become extremely valuable and CDs, not so much and you can easily you know and then they sort of switched places again where now the vinyl is w- worth way more than and you know it, it's just kind of weird and so you know i actually went and had a job at a record store for you know a little while down in the bay and i went in into to the uh interview and i was like i as for a fire for and they wanted me to you know show you know what i knew and this was like in 2015 or 2016 and i was still you know in a record store from 2007. So I was putting all these records, like, okay, here's Fleetwood Mac record rumors. It's only worth a dollar. And then, and you know, and like all this, and it's like, they were like, you're so five years off, man. All these records are worth so much more now. And then I didn't realize that, you know, yeah.
0: (laughs) It's crazy yeah. just how that takes <laughs> off, man like well let me let me ask you this too. I, I'm just curious I've never I've never you know asked another person this which is a simple question but what would be your favorite record from that lookout era? like do you have a favorite like a standout favorite besides your own?
1: <laughs> oh yeah my my favorite my favorite record from the lookout era uh, on lookout would be the crimp Shrine, talking clod record crimp Shrine, you know is a band that i just loved and yeah, we played so all the time so any crimp Shrine stuff i have like all their records but i know that one was on lookout yeah but uh, those they were probably my favorite lookout band so good i also really love i also really love soup a lot and uh I liked a lot of the bands. I, also, I liked a lot, you know, the lookout when it first started was uh, with David Hayes and Larry Livermore, mm-hmm. kind of the, you know, the, the two of them, they had, there was more of a, there's hardcore, there was going to, they were putting on neurosis corrupted moral records and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And at the same time they were doing Mr. T and and op ivy and more or you know green yeah. day was, uh, but you know there was uh different sounds coming from lookout and you kind of got the feeling of the lookout record could have gone in any direction you, mm-hmm. you know lots of different music lots of different. i like that i think later on they became more uniform on the, in their sound mm-hmm. And they still, you know, still vary. They got a little more garage air and stuff like that. But, but you know, I really like that those early, early Lookout records. Yeah. Those always shine to me. I, I like like the plaid ret- the first plaid retina pink eye record. I think was pretty fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. Great, great Lookout record. Absolutely. Uh, circuit brains. <laughs> Dude,
0: that catalog I could still remember. I wish I could find one. Just to have it still, you know, like flipping through there and, and, uh, just, we would all buy a different record so we could all share it cause we didn't have any money. So like, well, if we pay 10 bucks for this and I pay 10 bucks for this, then we could just swap them out, you know, and trade them out. And, and, uh, that was how we got (laughs) by back then was just like, we need more and more and more of this. And, uh. Hell yeah. yeah I had Larry on the show too. Larry actually <laughs> connected me well, sent me the address for Aaron Bus because I was gonna send him a letter because I guess you have to send him a snail mail letter because he doesn't do uh, the internet. Uh, <laughs> you know because I have all those I have all those magazines and those uh, the comic comic oh, scenes yeah. and stuff and just such an awesome time and and uh, so uh, I want to ask you too like as a father now, you 13 year old boy? Yeah, boy okay. Yeah. okay how big a part of his life is music does he take to music like you did or do you try do you try to put it in front of him or do you kind of let him discover on his own
1: i let him discover on his own but at the same time i do introduce him to stuff i think it goes over his head he's very much he's a 13 year old boy he's a skater he loves to skate mm-hmm. but uh He's very much into rap music and okay. the hip hop. Mm-hmm. He got into it, you know, lived in the Bay Area, and I think uh, you know he. I mean, he's been to punk shows. Uh, you know, I remember he was like four or five. I took him to this Subhumans uh, show in Oakland, Subhumans, and and he w- went on stage. We were all we were just like pit and. He went on stage and uh, he was about to jump off or so, and this punk rocker or this guy with a mohawk kicked him, <laughs> kicked him in the face. Oh, and me and, my, me and my wife are like, oh shit, oh no, we're in <laughs> the wrong show. But Pete the Roadie, who's the singer for my band Kicker, Yeah. he went up he was roadieing for subhumans. He went up and got the dude. He went up and got the guy that kicked him and it's like, made him apologize to my son up on stage. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then right after that, me and my wife was like, Oh, we got to get him out of this show.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. Have you been to Gilman with him?
1: Yes. Yeah. He's been to a few shows. He's actually in Jew driver. He I think it was a ha- Halloween show. He was dressed up as a ninja and I got him up on stage. I play guitar and G driver mm-hmm. and we were up. I, he was right next to me in his ninja costume. So he became ninju and he was like doing <laughs> ninja, uh, exercises to the whole g-driver set <laughs> i think it's only like seven years old at this time
0: <laughs> yeah i love that i love that man it's it, it just all yeah it all just ties together in such a cool such a cool way and now you guys have a ranch and animals and a ton of peacocks yes which is just so yes, random we and weird <laughs> i so you guys I, is your wife just happy as ever being out there with the animals and having some space uh, yeah and you're enjoying oh, it yeah. too then?
1: She's a horse. Yes. Yes. Okay. She's a horse lover. I, I like being outside. Mm-hmm. I like the space and I, and I like horses. I like animals. So, yeah. I've, you know, I've had dogs for a long time and I've been an animal lover and I actually love horses. Uh, I, you know, we had the racetrack at the, at, in Albany and I used to go to racetrack all the time. Mm-hmm. So i i had a love for horses i just never owned them since till now so yeah it's a definitely a big responsibility and they're big animals they could hurt you so
0: my daughter (laughs) my daughter is so into horses she's seven and uh they really want to see the redwoods we're gonna we bought we just bought a 15 passenger van with the same one we used to tour in pretty much uh to go just travel around and I think I'm going to get him okay. down there soon to, to that area. And just to, my wife wants to see him; Like she's never been da- She's always flown down through California, never driven down right. through. And it's just such a beautiful place the The whole Northern California area. And I would love to come through, see the Redwoods and then just, just drive up, get out of the van and just kind of stand at Gilman for a second, take it in. And then on our yeah. own terms and move on, you know, like, uh, it, there's just so many things like that that we, we want to do. But, um, I love that you're happy, and I, I love know, that you're it. out where you want to be. You've got your family. Your wife's happy. You got what she wanted to, to have with the ranch. You're still playing music. Yes. It's all just yeah. a really good story, my friend. It really oh, is. thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on the show. And I mean, no, this is surreal for me. You know, like, <laughs> I, you know, I know it seems small, but like, Never in my life I told myself no, you know. back when I was, you know, 13, 14 years old, hey, in in 2021, you're gonna be hanging with Dave Mello on this video chat thing. I'd be like, what? <laughs> Shut up. Like, no, you know. <laughs> and you know, I don't I don't usually fan out on this thing, but this is I was really looking forward to this one, man. And and uh I I just well, love it. Thank you. I love yeah, it. Man. I I appreciate it very, very much. The time is valuable and I mean, the hours of enjoyment I've gotten from what you do is is priceless to me. So um, I really appreciate it. And it's about uh-uh. it's about time for my uh, bi-yearly turndown from Jesse to come on the show. <laughs> I reach out to him every six months oh, yeah. because it, I had a hard time finding you on there. but I finally did. And I was like, man, I've, let's see what happens. And uh, But yeah, he turns me down twice a year. He just doesn't want to do interviews. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, it's not an interview. Like, I don't know how to put it across to him that it's not an interview. Like, it's just a chat like you know yeah. and it can go anywhere everyone just like yeah nah, i'm not really doing interviews about but dude let's talk about pepsi like whatever like it doesn't matter like we can talk about anything but uh dude yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun to talk it's fun to talk. Yeah. yeah and I, you dude you are welcome back anytime on the show you know it just hit me up uh and and we can do it you know anytime <laughs> i really i'm glad we got to do cool. your first one that's only happened a couple of yeah, times. It's really rare. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I'm glad it
1: worked. I was scared about that. <laughs> dude, I,
0: I I was hoping you wouldn't be scared because it was, you know, and I, I just love, uh, uh, I actually clicked in a little bit earlier cause it was on here. They were on here and there was no one there. And I was like, all right, I'm going to put him back in the waiting room. So I'm not creepy. Just sitting there on the, on the computer screen and waiting for whatever. Cause I was like, Whoa, someone's on time. Perfect. Like that's always, that's always a good yeah. sign, but. Anyways, dude, I thank just, you. I
1: just signed on early days. Sure. Right on, man. Dude. Thank you.
0: And uh, yeah, keep in touch. I'll let you know when this is coming out and we can work out whatever for an image to use and things like that. And and uh, man, just thank you so much for, for all the music and continuing to do it and, and uh, just being the man. Love it.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it, man. Awesome. And thank you for having me. It was an experience for Dude,
0: sure. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> All right, Dave. i well, will let you get back to your uh-huh. evening and uh, we'll chat All soon, right. my friend. All right. All right. Thank you. See ya. Okay. Bye. See ya. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dave Mello from Operation Ivy. He was also from Schlong and his new band, Kicker, is pretty badass. So go check them out as well. Um, thanks again to Dave for coming on. And, man, what a journey it's been going through the East Bay stuff this last little while. Um, Like I said, Corbett Redford coming out on Thursday uh, has become a really great friend. And just picking his brain about stuff has been awesome. And just kind of bouncing around, living through that scene again like I was in Alaska. It's just something I really, really cherish. Um, And I cherish each and every one of you guys coming back week after week and listening. So go check out the Peer Pleasure Podcast Inner Circle Facebook group right now on Facebook sign up for it. We'll let you in, get you going. Uh, It's been growing every day, which has been killer. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We'd love seeing those reviews come in. If each and every one of you listening right now went over to Apple iTunes, I know some of you guys have Spotify and you're kind of fucked there because they don't allow reviews. I don't know why we've been fighting them on it, but if you have access to Apple podcasts and you're listening to it on it now, if each and every one of you went and reviewed the show, it would be off the charts. So I challenge each and every one of you to go write us a review. I love seeing them. It makes me feel great. Um, it makes me feel like people are listening uh, and participating in, you know, I'll keep doing this for you guys. I just love doing it, uh, but it's nice to see those reviews come in. So if you get the chance, pause the episode, end the episode, and go review the show right now. And yeah, send me a screenshot. Send me a, send me a thing on Instagram. I would love to see that because I don't get notified about it till way later. So anyways, I'm gonna stop rambling guys. We got another episode on Thursday with Corbett Redford from Turn It Around. I am stoked to bring that to you as well, Uh, but I'm gonna get out of here. Thank you so much for coming back week after week. And as always, we'll see you on the radio.